So today we're talking about the second angel, and we'll probably dabble in a little bit of the third angel. There's basically a one presentation on the second angel. How long it takes to go through it uh, is a fair question, but there's only one technical presentation. It may take two sessions to do it. So let's pray. And what we're going to be looking at today is the spirit of Babylon. Okay, we're going to be looking at the spirit of Babylon. This is not an expose and drop kicking the Pope for an hour and 45 minutes. It's basically just kind of walking through the main issues that uphold the system of Babylon because that's what's most like damaging. Like we're so focused on a guy in a white suit and a pointy hat in Rome, but the issues of the Mark of the Beast crisis and of Babylon are so much bigger than one guy in one geographical location and who he's meeting with. If he's meeting with Joel Osteen and T.D. Jakes and, you know, whoever, like, and that's totally true and that's troubling. Like, the ecumenical movement is a real thing and it's certainly leading in a direction the Bible says. But if that's all we're focusing on, are we really preparing the world to leave Babylon when all we're doing is pointing at one individualized system but the Bible says that that system has literally corrupted the entire world. So, like, there's an issue the whole world is dealing with whether they know of their allegiance to Rome or not. Does that make sense? There's much more at play here is all I'm saying. I'm not downplaying. Like, trust me, I would love to give an expose on how gnarly and atrocious the teachings of the papacy are. Who wouldn't, right? Like, that's, I get that. But there's so much more going on that even can be found in our own midst if we're not careful. Uh, which is very damaging. So I want to talk about that, the spirit of Babylon. Okay, so let's pray. God in heaven, thank you for this chance to study together, to search into the second angel's message, and some of this applies to the third as well. I pray for your hand of blessing, uh, that you would guide us as we study with fresh insights from your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so the goal for today is not... um, what we've already talked about. It's not to just, you know, exhaustively talk about what Rome is doing. Uh, I want to talk about the system that's upholding Rome. So we're not going to talk about who the Antichrist is. We're going to have a whole class on that. If you don't know, I'm sorry for whoever has failed you, but we're going to talk about this later. Uh, It's the seat of the papacy. It's what's happening at the Vatican. Anyway, so resources can be given to deal with all that, right? Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Revelation 13, Revelation 17, 2 Thessalonians 2, And we will have a thorough, clear Bible study identifying all of that later, okay, in our Adventist Fundamental Beliefs class. That's not the purpose of this class, okay? Now listen to this. This is a course-setting quote for this uh, particular topic. This is from Testimonies for the Church, Volume 6, page 236. She says, The law that none liveth to himself, Satan was determined to oppose. He desired to live for for self. And it was this that incited rebellion in heaven, and it was man's acceptance of this principle that brought sin on the earth. Okay? If we have some leftover time this week, and that may happen because uh, I've made good time so far, we may just talk about this whole issue of the war in heaven and what happened uh, and walk through the chronology of that because it can be really, really helpful. So if we have extra time, we'll do that. Okay? She says this in education, unselfishness which is the principle of God's kingdom. That's interesting, isn't it? So in the previous quote, she says, The law that none liveth to himself, Satan hates. He was determined to oppose it. He desired to live for self, and that led to the rebellion in heaven and eventually the fall of Adam and Eve on earth, right? She also makes this point that unselfishness is a principle of God's kingdom. And it's the principle that Satan hates. Its very existence he denies. He literally says that unselfishness is, I almost said impossible, impossible, right? From the beginning of the great controversy, Satan has endeavored to prove God's principles of action to be selfish, and he deals in the same way with all who serve God. God is selfish, and so are you, okay? So to disprove Satan's claim is the work of Christ and all who bear his name. So the real root issue in the great controversy, the two competing philosophies and governing principles in the war between Christ and Satan are selfishness and unselfish love. 
at the very foundational level, that's what this whole conflict is about. Selfishness and unselfish love. Okay? Education 154.4, next paragraph, I think. It was to give in his own life an illustration of unselfishness that Jesus came in the form of humanity. She literally says one of the reasons why Jesus came to this place in the first place was to live a life of unselfishness. And all who accept this principle are to be workers together with him in demonstrating it in the practical life. So the call of Christians is not just to tell people that Jesus died for them, though he absolutely did. The call of Christians is also to live a life of unselfishness in every practical sphere to uplift God's heavenly kingdom principle. That's what we're told. Ella White was given a vision in October 23rd of 1879. Now listen to what she says here. It's really interesting, the language she uses. She says, on the morning of October 23rd, 1879, about two o'clock, the Spirit of the Lord rested upon me, and I beheld scenes in the coming judgment. Language fails me in which to give an adequate description of the things which passed before me and the effect that they had upon my mind. Was this an impactful vision? Was it, was it deeply stirring to her soul? Yeah. So what'd she see? She says, the great day of the execution of God's judgment seemed to have come. 10,000 times 10,000 were assembled before a large throne, upon which was seated a person of majestic appearance. Several books were opened before him, and upon the covers of each were written in letters of gold, which seemed like a burning flame of fire, ledger of heaven. One of these books, containing the names of those who claimed to believe the truth, was then opened. I immediately lost sight of the countless millions around the throne. So notice the language she's going to use here is, I saw something and whoa, but that wasn't the most important thing. Because then I saw this, but whoa, that wasn't the most important thing. She keeps kind of giving this type of impression and the vision the way she explains it. And she says, only those who are professedly children of the light and of the truth engage my attention. As these persons were named one by one, their good deeds mentioned, their countenances would light up with a holy joy that was reflected in every direction. But this did not seem to rest upon my mind with the greatest force. What did? Another book was open, wherein were recorded the sins of those who professed the truth. And under the general heading of selfishness came every other sin. When the book was opened, I killed it yesterday on this board and no one even said anything about it. And this is not going to be one of those days, I can tell already. I said, I said you pew is useful. Um, all right, so when you see a name, the thing that's next to the name, right, you got your little gildings at the bottom there. Uh-huh. Bob Ross action for you. <laughs> right, next to the name is written selfishness. This is literally what shows up in the book next to somebody's name who professes to know the truth. There were also headings over every other column, and underneath these, underneath these, opposite each name, were recorded in the respective columns the lesser sins. You know, like murder and stuff. At its very base fundamental level, what God sees as the chiefest of transgressions, the greatest deviance or divergence from his kingdom principle, it's selfishness. Kind of a big deal, huh? She says this in First Selected Messages. Christ is to receive supreme love from the being he has created, and he requires also that man shall cherish a sacred regard for his fellow beings. So we should be fighting for people and advocating for people and so forth. We should have a sacred regard for our fellow human beings. I just heard a report the other day that a woman was sexually assaulted on a train in Philadelphia and the entire car watching this homeless guy do this to this woman did nothing. Some of them were holding up their phones. No one called the police and no one helped her. And you hear other reports of this, people being mugged on street corners and no one, they just stare and watch this. When the Bible says that the hearts of men have grown cold, this, this, this is not how we're created to live. 
God requires that we have a sacred regard for our fellow man. Every soul will be saved through love, which begins where? With God. True conversion is a change from selfishness to sanctified affection for God and from one another. True conversion is a transforming of the heart from selfishness to other-centered love. Will Seventh-day Adventists now make a thorough reformation that their sin-stained souls may be cleansed from the leprosy of selfishness? Yo. So from the very beginning of the rebellion, Satan has sought to portray God as being selfish, while at the same time alluring others to live for themselves and to abide by His kingdom principle. And that campaign is still alive and well today, isn't it? Do you get yours? Because that's all that there is. This is one of the other fruits of atheism. You might as well just live for you, because what's the point of living for everybody else? They don't matter. You don't really matter at the end of the day. Legacies don't really matter. Just do you. Right? If there is no objective moral standard, then you literally can do what thou wilt. Where do you think Aleister Crowley got that idea? Right? Like you can just keep doing you. So Satan has a storefront on earth right now that's responsible not only for living out the principles of selfishness, but it has influenced the entire world with its teachings and example. Right? We're speaking of Rome. Thus, continuing Satan's propaganda campaign that's been going on since the fall. This apostate system is called the mother of harlots, and it has many daughters, we're told, Revelation 17 and verse 5. And those daughters are religious movements that bear similar traits to the mother in leading people to serve out of fear and selfishness and in putting themselves and their own preferences first. And they're also giving a theology to the world that distorts the character of God and is unselfish love. This is the danger. This is the issue. This is the spirit of Babylon that pervades the whole world. She's known for her opulence and display in religious matters, and according to Revelation 18, 9-19, she shaped the way that the leaders of the world do commerce and life. And all of that is in the context of elevating self at the expense of others. Why is it that the merchantmen are grieving over the death of the harlot? It's because she's the one that influenced them to do life the way that they do it. But we need to pan back and figure out how we got here because the train didn't start in Babylon. It started somewhere else. This is just the last stop on the train, okay? So listen to this, Revelation 12, 7 to 9. Somebody read that, nice and loud. I may interrupt you just to warn you, so don't be offended. And the war war broke out in heaven. All right, stop there. That's kind of troubling, isn't it? We just read it. We're having us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great kind yeah. But like, think about this. War. War broke out in heaven. Heaven is not a place that's known for conflict. It's a place of Edenic peace, of preferring one another over ourselves, and yet war breaks out of all places in heaven. Okay. This is, this is, this is a, an internal familial dispute. This is not Joe Biden versus Donald Trump, right? Like, this is not that. This is not Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell. Like, this, is, this isn't like we've always hated each other from eternity past. Like, they were very close and something happened, okay? Just wrap your mind around that. Okay, I won't interrupt you anymore for this one, I think. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon... And his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. All right, I'm going to go ahead and say this. I'm going to say it in a future class, but I'll give you a front load. And if you put this in your homework assignment, uh, when you get it, then you get bonus points. The word for war here is the word polemos, okay? Now, I was going to open my mouth and say some things. That was one of them. So, um, the, it's the root word that we get today for polemics and politics. Does anybody know what the art of polemics is? It's debating. 
polemics, right? The art of polemics. So you're learning how to be on the debate team or debating or so forth. So, and in politics, like both of these have the same root structure to them. This word is the root word for both of them. And it's implying this strong verbal dispute. Okay, when it says that war broke out in heaven, it was a strong verbal dispute, a war of ideas. Now, that is not denying the fact that there is some form or fashion of a physical aspect to this war, but it's primarily a war of words and ideas. Okay, this is what's being referred to here. Okay, there certainly had to be a physical removal of Lucifer, I'm not denying that, but what's largely implied by the language is this, okay? in the context. Verses 3 to 4 tell us that Satan persuaded a third of the angels to buy into this. Um, And it was basically starting this kind of gossip and smear tactic campaign that God is not really just. God is not really who he says he is, right? And um, yeah, you know, we may end up doing, we're going to do that. We'll do that right after this. Um, I'll go through that presentation, just walk through just the quotes of the Spirit of Prophecy that talk about how this happened, because this is still part of that issue, so it, it'll, it'll be relevant. All right, in Ezekiel chapter 28, we see how he did this, okay? So I'm going to read a, a decent amount of verses here, but I may read these just for time's sake to, to be quick. This is beginning of verse 1. Usually when we read Ezekiel 28 about the fall of Lucifer, we skip ahead to verse like 11 or something. I forget where it is. But I want to begin at the beginning, because look at what he says. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man... Say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is lifted up. Okay, and I would underline these things. Your heart is lifted up. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, um, underline. Your heart is lifted up, and you say, I am a God, and I sit in the seat of God. Underline that. You see him on the board here. In the midst of the seas, yet you are a man and not a God, though you set your heart as the heart of a God. You can underline that as well. You set your heart as the heart of a God. Behold, you are wiser than Daniel. There is no secret that can be hidden from you. So do you think he's really talking about the Prince of Tyre? Or is he talking about the spirit that's inspiring him to do the things that he's doing? Right? You'll see this certainly later in the verses. With your wisdom and understanding, you've gained riches for yourself and gathered gold and silver into your treasuries. By your great wisdom and trade, you've increased your riches and your heart is lifted up because of your riches. Okay? Now, are these threads that we're going to see in Babylon later? Yeah, okay? We're going to see that those thoughts didn't originate with Babylonians, right? With the Pope or whoever, right? These are borrowed philosophies from their father, as Jesus would say, your father, the devil, okay? So underline this selfish language here because it's super important. We're going to come back to it later. Verse 6, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have set your heart as the heart of a God. Underline that again. Behold, therefore, I will bring strangers against you, the most terrible of the nations, and they're going to come at you, okay? Um, All right, skip to verse 10. Um, No, verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, here's where we usually start these verses, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, you are the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. So it was created in a perfect condition. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Clearly, he's not talking about the literal king of Tyre. He's talking about Lucifer, okay? Every precious stone which you're covering, the sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold, the workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. He's a created being, and he was created in a perfect condition, and he was musical in nature. It's a whole other topic of conversation. Verse 14, you were the anointed cherub who covers. Now, when you hear that language, what should that remind you of? An anointed cherub that covers. The Ark of the Covenant, that's right. And you were in the immediate presence of God. That's exactly right, right? So the presence of God dwelt in between these two cherubim, right? And the Ark of the Covenant on earth, right? They were just ceremonial angels, if you will. They were just made of metal, but it's representing what happens in the throne in heaven, that there are two beings in closest proximity to God. Lucifer was one of those. That's what's implied. You were in the immediate presence of God. So, you were on the holy mountain of God. I established you. You were on the holy, holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect. Again, he says this. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. Now, we're going to go back through these verses at a later time and talk about the chiastic structure of this. I don't have time to do that right now. But it says, Until iniquity was found in you, by the abundance of your trading, 
which is the word rekula, which means to sell or to gossip, right, or to traffic something. Um, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. So you were in the presence of God. The God revealed himself on mountains many times throughout the scriptures. And so that implies being in God's presence. And in the midst of the fiery stones, that's the pavement before the throne of God in heaven. So three times you were in the presence of God, in the presence of God, in the presence of God. But sin was, you were perfect in the way that you were created, but sin was found in you. So you were cast out of the presence of God, out of the presence of God, out of the presence of God. Verse 17. Here's the main issue we're looking for. Your heart was lifted up, underline that, because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. You can underline that one too. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities and again by the iniquity of your trading. That's the second time he refers to this kind of trafficking, selling, gossiping as sin. Therefore, I brought fire from your midst, and it devoured you, and I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who knew you among the peoples are astonished at you. You become a horror and shall be no more forever. We're just looking at selfish language, self-elevating language. We'll unpack some of those other issues later in future studies. We see it again in Isaiah 14. How you are followed from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said, where? in your heart that I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Now this sounds like language used in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll come back to that. But do you think he's longing to be like the most high in character? or in position. He wants his position, right? I want to be in charge. Yet you shall be brought down, you shall be brought down to Sheol. So it's a spirit of selfishness, self-exaltation, pride, envy, and striving for advancement that is a spirit that originates from Lucifer. And as we'll see, it's one of the crowning traits of the beast powers of Revelation. They speak with the same language that he speaks. In fact, the Bible even says that about the second beast. He looks like a lamb, but speaks like a dragon, okay? This cannot be the spirit of the people of God. We desperately need Jesus and his spirit of humility, gentleness, unselfishness, and a willingness to be overlooked and unappreciated. To not be striving for supremacy and proving our worthiness and so forth, right? That spirit does not originate from God. So what was heaven's reaction to this spirit that overtook Lucifer and his actions uh, and so forth? We're going to come back to this text again later, uh, which kind of, you know, takes away from some of that study we'll do later, but you may forget anyway. We'll see. So Jesus sends out the 70 missionaries to go preach the gospel, to heal the sick, cast out demons, do that gospel work, y'all, right? So he sends them, and they come back, and they're beaming with joy, and they're snapping their suspenders. And so they say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And you would assume Jesus is going to go, hey, high five, fellas, way to beat the bad guys. But then Jesus says such a strange thing. He says, I saw Lucifer, or I saw Satan, fall like lightning from heaven. What a strange statement. We just cast out demons. We beat the bad guys. Jesus' kind of sad response to them is, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And you think, uh, like, what's, what? Then he says, Behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. But nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. So apparently there are still traces of Lucifer's spirit in the response of the disciples, Right? Because they're rejoicing about having power over. This principle of having power over does not come from God. And delighting in having power over. Jesus came as a servant leader. He made himself less to lift us up, not ruling his power over us to show us what our real station is in comparison with him. Yes? Yeah, that's crazy. And you see that a lot these days, like with all those, like, pastors. 
spirits who are supposed to cast out demons. Yeah, no, it's true. See, look, look what I say. Like, like I, I have the Holy Spirit. <laughs> exactly. So, like, demons submit to my authority. Uh, I don't know if Paul dealt with this in his class, but uh, one of the things that Paul talks about in his spiritual warfare content is that we are never to engage in conversation with demons. Mm-hmm. Never. We give Jesus permission to rebuke the demons. We don't rebuke them. Right? The Lord rebuke you. We, we give God permission to engage and rebuke and cast out, but we are not to engage in dialogue with them, right? Because you're outgunned. Ask the seven sons of Sceva, right? So, um, so Jesus has to tell these guys to pump the brakes. And it's really easy again to lose sight of the fact that Revelation 12's war in heaven was a domestic dispute. It was a family affair. So imagine, you know, I mean, you see it actually in King David. There, there's actually parallels to the story of Absalom and Lucifer. I'm not going to go into that, but there are parallels to this. And, you know, like people are rejoicing over the death of Absalom, and, and David's not happy about it, even though Absalom was warring against David and trying to kill him. Right? He, wasn't, he wasn't pleased with that. He still grieved for his death, right, nearly to his own detriment as a leader of Israel. And I think there's a principle there for us that God does not delight in the destruction of the wicked. God does not delight in what's going to happen to the quote-unquote bad guys because they weren't always bad guys. Right? Just because your children turn on you does not mean that they stop being your children. You created them out of love. That doesn't go away. And we lose sight of that. And Jesus gives us some insight into his headspace on how it feels. And so what he's telling them is don't rejoice over the fact that they're not going it still grieves me to think about it. Just be glad that you are going. And we get some insight into the heart of God through this. But the good news is, this tells me that when I reflect the spirit of Lucifer and I strive for supremacy or put myself first or become envious of my neighbor, that Jesus and the Father don't stop loving me either. Jesus still has love in his heart for Lucifer, and that may make you uncomfortable. But Jesus doesn't stop loving people just because they don't toe the line. Does he endorse what they do? Does he enable them to do what they do? Is he going to deal justice and fully and absolutely? Yeah. And it's a strange act for him. He has no sympathy for the devil. I'm not saying that. But you don't create somebody out of love and then take delight in destroying them. You can't do that. No parent could do that. They had any form of a moral compass, let alone the God of the universe. And anyway... There's another interesting form of history found in the book of Job. Um, My basic point of that is that Jesus doesn't hate the devil. He hates what he's doing, and he's going to have to deal with him firmly and fully. But those, yeah, it's a difficult, difficult process for them. And you see Jesus bear his heart there in Luke chapter 10. And we'll flesh that out more later. So there's an interesting history for the book of Job. If you weren't aware, the book of Job is actually the first book of the Bible that was written, not Genesis. Job was written first chronologically. And so this is the first book that Moses actually wrote. And yeah. And the interesting thing is the book opens up with Satan, who when asked why he's at this gathering, confronts God and says, not only is God selfish, but that Job, his follower, is selfish too. He says, God asked him, where did you come from? And his question is, who are you representing in this gathering? And he says, from walking to and fro on the earth. And God's response is, well, not everybody follows you. What about Job? And he says, look, he only follows you because you're blessing him. You're baiting him. You're selfish and want worship, so you bless him. And he's selfish and doesn't want to get in trouble, so he serves you because he's blessed. You're selfish and he's selfish. Hey, didn't Ellen White say that very thing? That God projects God's character to be selfish, and he does the same for his followers? Well, yeah, you see it in the book of Job. This is what Lucifer does. He projects to the people of God that they're selfish, and he projects to God that he's selfish. Okay? And this happens twice in the book of Job. But God isn't threatened by this, and he allows for Job to be tested, and at the end it's proven that God was not working through selfish principles, nor does he demand things of his people out of selfishness. He gives all free will, and it's love that leads him to do so, and love is what leads his followers to reciprocate and to obey not selfishness, which is why what we mentioned earlier this week, it is not the fear of hell or the reward of heaven that leads the true followers of Christ to follow him or the true disciples of Christ to follow him. 
it's love. Otherwise, selfishness is our motivator. I want to get out of this bad world. I don't want to go to the bad place at the end of the world. Selfishness is what drives us if that's the case. And you cannot strive to reach a heavenly ideal with an earthly principle and an earthly motivation. I mean, really a devilish one. So the first book that God has recorded for humanity gives us the picture of the conflict between good and evil, unselfish love and selfishness. This is the territory for the great controversy. Hey, this is super important. Hello, hello, hello. This is like the most important thing. So if you can follow me for here a second. The first book of the Bible that God gave to humanity gives this picture of the conflict between good and evil, unselfish love and selfishness. This is the issue for the great controversy. This is ground zero. This is where the whole root structure is. It's this, okay? Every act of obedience and disobedience and every act of worship are birthed out of these two principles. Every act of obedience or disobedience and every act of worship is birthed out of one of these two principles, selfishness or unselfishness. Not trying to be rude, but literally it's like the most important thing I had to say in this whole presentation. So that's, that's what we have to wrap our minds around. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, you have nothing to show for it, right? If you make the wrong choice, certainly. And the thing is, everyone who's outside of that city in Philippians will recognize, Philippians 2 tells us that the every knee will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Even Lucifer himself, we're told, um, L.O.I. says very clearly, even he will bow and acknowledge that he was wrong in that moment, right before they're destroyed. Like, that's their closing thought, and that's the legacy they, live, they leave to the world. Right? No one wants that, right? And, and the answer to this is, no, I don't want to have a bad legacy. Like, I better work really hard to get God to like me so I won't have a bad legacy because that still ends up being a selfish motivation. And when selfishness is your motivation, you actually never really find peace because you're continually looking for something that you'll never find apart from being fully known and fully loved by God, right? At the end of the day, like, that's what we really want. And the only true rest you can find for your soul is through that mutual giving and receiving love relationship with God. You ever been in a situation where you truly and genuinely love someone and you're giving for them, but they don't give back? It's miserable. It's awful, right? And like even just going through waves of remembering that experience can be painful. I woke up super early this morning just like haunted with thoughts of an event in my life where that was the case. I don't know why that was there and was processing through it, but like it's just a gnarly bad taste in your mouth to go through experiences like that. So you can't find true rest or peace outside of being fully known and fully loved. Yeah. I guess, I guess what I'm trying to say is you, you, you either um, are destroyed with the wicked, and once the wicked are destroyed, you know, that's like an act of love because they're, they're not going to know. Anything. He's giving them what they they're, want, they're certainly. Be at peace. Um, but then the people that follow God, they're going to be at peace with God in heaven. So really to actually reach our full potential anywhere or become anything is to truly love God, you know, through life. And, and the only way that we will find that love for Him, First John four nineteen tells us, is to receive His love for us. So that's where the true path to peace is found, right? And so some of us feel like living a life of unselfishness is like taking away all my fun or something, you know, like we're losing something along the way. It's actually the only way to truly gain what really matters, to be willing to be vulnerable enough to let yourself be seen and either rejected or loved is the greatest act of vulnerability, isn't it? But what if you can give the greatest amount of vulnerability to the greatest amount of love, to the greatest source of love? Then you will find a filling and a healing that no one else can give, right? And that's the risk that's worth taking, right? And so, anyway, the book of Job kind of gives us this big picture of the issues that are at stake. And I think it's very interesting that the first thing that God put in the hands of humanity in written form was this thing that we're talking about right now, the root issue of the great controversy, selfishness versus unselfishness. So every act of obedience and disobedience and even every act of worship is going to be birthed out of one of those two principles, unselfish love or selfishness. Yes, you can worship in a mind frame of being selfish, right? So at the end of time, there will be, we will either worship God out of true love for Him and what He's done in Christ, or people will worship Satan out of selfish motives to save their own physical lives. And this is the issue of the mark of the beast. So if all we talk about is what the mark of the beast is, 
but we don't talk about the, the philosophical structure that upholds the mark of the beast. We've not really prepared people to stand in the mark of the beast crisis. Are you understanding? Just telling people not to worship on Sunday doesn't fully set them up to not be deceived and to be falling prey to the mindset that leads to receiving the mark of the beast. Are you understanding? So this is super, super important for us. There's going to be a massive battle over how to preach the message of God's truth in a way that truly reflects his character of unselfish love and not through force or coercion. It is absolutely and unfortunately possible to preach the Revelation 14 message with a Revelation 13 spirit. We can do that. We can take a Babylonian approach to a heaven-sent message. If it's only fear-based, which leads to a selfish response, it is not what God intends with the three angels' messages. We can do that. And so we need to examine the way in which we communicate, right? Putting a big graphic on billboards outside of gnarly, scary beasts and telling people to come inside and see what we have to say is not really a good idea. Like we're using fear to advertise. Showing people hope in Jesus, speaking into current events can be helpful. But again, if it's just a bunch of warplanes and bombs and stuff, like what are we really doing at the end of the day? Like we're trying to use fear to bait people into coming to a meeting, but then we're going to try to give them hope, right? That's a bait and switch. That's dishonest. Like just preach the truth as it is in Jesus. Jesus is attractive, Ellen White says. Should we have to present the terrors before God to convince people to love him? She says, no, it savors of selfishness. Jesus is attractive. So I just think that the way that we're doing this is not the ideal scenario. You can speak into hopelessness and discouragement and that people feel afraid and what to do with their fear. That's a whole other story. But to use advertising that triggers a fear-based response to attend the meetings, I'm not okay with that, right? We just don't think this through. We have the best of intentions. People aren't sitting in a room thinking, oh man, what's the way that we can manipulate people? I hope that's not the case. And I, I assume the, the best that that's not the case. The people aren't thinking of the psychology of how to get people to make decisions like that. But that's not, that's not what we're about, right? Like that's not how the gospel works. Jesus didn't shame people or trigger them with fear to respond to him. Like when Jesus came into people's presence and they were horrified, you know what he said? Don't be afraid. <laughs> Fear not. Right? Like, I don't want you to have this type of relationship with me. Right? All right. We already dealt with all that anyway. The fear of God. So desire of ages. The earth was dark. Desire of ages 22.1. The earth was dark through misapprehension of God. Is that still the case? Yeah, it's even worse now. That the gloomy shadows might be lightened, that the world might be brought back to God, Satan's deceptive power was to be broken. But this could not be done by force. The exercise of force is contrary to the principles of God's government. He desires only the service of love, and love cannot be commanded. It cannot be won by force or authority. Okay? So our approach will not lead to the right response if we do it this way. We strong arm, strong arm and coerce people to obey or do what we say or whatever. And then comes the famous quote that we've heard before. Only by love is love awakened. To know God is to love him. His character must be manifested in contrast to the character of Satan. And at the very root level, what was God's character? Unselfish, unselfish love. In contrast to Satan's character, of purebred diabolical selfishness. This work only one being in all the universe could do, who is Jesus. Only he who knew the height and depth of the love of God could make it known. And upon the world's dark night, the sun of righteousness must rise with healing in his wings. She's a poet and a scholar, y'all. What a blessing. So these two approaches are shown super clearly in Revelation chapter 13 and Revelation chapter 14. One is giving a clarion call to worship upon threat of death or imprisonment. The other is giving an invitation to true worship through painting a picture of God's unselfish love and inviting a response. Do you see the two totally different approaches? You better do it or else, and there's penalties if you don't, or 
I present before you the most lovely being the universe has ever known. He is absolutely head over heels in love with you. And out of his love for you, he's concerned about the things that are happening in this earth that could lead you to a path of destruction. Here is a better way out and a way of escape that's coming from a Savior who understands the grind of your life, the difficulties of rejection, abandonment, loneliness, abuse, and so forth. He gets that. And he's inviting you to come boldly and respond to his love and to worship in a way that is liberating and healing and freeing and not, you know, manipulative and putting you into bondage. Right? You're presenting who God is and inviting people to respond as opposed to shaming or coercing or pressuring or leading to a fear-based response in Revelation 13. Yeah? It's two totally different approaches. So, anyway, that's, that's the thing. All right, we'll skip those for time's sake. So, based upon the counsel that we were given in Desire of Ages, we should be using a Revelation 14 approach to giving the Revelation 14 message, not Revelation 13 which means that fear should not be the bedrock or the soil through which we present truth or even advertise truth because fear leads to a selfish motivation and that isn't God's method. Yeah? Now, we've already dealt with all this section. What about fear God and give glory to Him? We did all that. So, already. So, God appeals through the intellect and the heart according to 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7. Because God, the Bible says that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind, which implies that fear robs us of power. It robs us of the ability to love and to be loved, and it robs us of the ability to make sound and intelligent decisions, which is not what God is asking from us. So God appeals through the intellect. The three angels' messages are deeply rational and logical. We've already seen that in the first angel's message, and hopefully you're seeing it in the second, right? And you'll see it in the third. And he, he goes through the intellect, through the reasoned, to the heart, right? So God's message doesn't stop here. He doesn't just tickle your intellectual fancies and wow you with his intellectual, you know, arguments. He uses intellectual, clear, logical presentations. They also reach the heart. And this is the way the three angels' messages should be presented to people because that's the way that he intended, right? So, the three angels' messages are deeply rational, logical, while rooted in God's love for man and a desire to keep them from harm and deception. That's the point, okay? So you can preach a message of warning, and you should. There's a whole lot of warnings in this message. But the point is, you need to do it in a way that leads to the proper response, Otherwise, people flame out. When people make fear-based decisions, they don't last, mm-hmm. right? If you come in here and pour a hot pot of coffee in somebody's lap, yeah, they'll jump and scream, but they're not going to stay, right? They're not going to be fully converted. There will not be a settling into the truth, which is the true seal of God, because you won't even last long enough to do that. This is why people come and go. They're not discipled, and they're not given a solid Christ-centered picture and nurtured in that view of a healthy view of God. Because that would, that would lead someone to be fully philosophically committed to a movement of destiny, even if the members in a local congregation aren't exactly what they wish they, who they would be. Because they realize that this is so clearly a movement ordained of God, this is what I'm committing to, a God of love and a message of love. Are you understanding? Like, th- this is what keeps me rooted in the Seventh-day Adventist church. It's not people. Never has been and never will be. I almost didn't join the Seventh-day Adventist church because of people. And I didn't understand that God was inviting me to be a member of a prophetic movement of destiny, not to endorse whatever was happening in a dead white church in the middle of nowhere, right? I didn't know that. So I thought like, hey, I think what you're saying is true, but what I see in this church isn't working. So like, should I even join the thing? Well, it isn't about the local church. In fact, if I see issues in my local church, that is God's invitation to me to make a positive difference in my local church, not to bail. If you had the soundness of mind to recognize something is wrong, then you have the responsibility to make things right in whatever ways you can in the sphere of influence that God has given you, working within the parameters of the local leadership that's there. Not to complain and leave and do my own thing and I'll just home church from now on because my church stinks, right? That's not God's plan for your life, guaranteed. He didn't call you, right? You're baptized into the body, we're told, not into your local house to avoid people that you don't like. Labor for them. Show them Jesus. Be the salt that your church needs. Don't leave because you don't like what you see, 
right? So this will lead people to stay. This message and this understanding of what this movement of destiny is will lead people to stay in spite of what people do, right? Yes, sir. So, like, what do we do with Jude 1, 123, I think it is? Yeah. It says, um, honor regards of fear. And others say, but others say with fear, pulling them out of the fire. We already had like a full like hour-long presentation on fear that talked about the difference between the abject fear and the fear of God. So, How do you apply that so in short, Ellen White defines true fear of God is birth out of love. The love of God ever tends to the fear of God, fear to offend Him. So your desire for these people not to be lost and for God's heart to be broken is what drives you to save these souls, in short. But using a fear-based approach for them will lead to them having a selfish response, which certainly wouldn't be what he wants. So you have to kind of sort through, like if something looks like it kind of flies in the face of what other biblical truth says, you got to kind of wrestle with it and figure out how to make it fit. And that's how you make it fit, is that you're saving them out of fear of their soul being lost, right? That's, you don't want them to be lost. You don't want God's heart to be broken. That's a different scenario than you being afraid of God, right? Because God doesn't want that. It leads you to make bad decisions. It robs you of power. And it even shuts down your ability to even love Him at all. Because when you shut down one emotion, you actually shut down all of them, studies show. So, yeah, I would say that. Yeah. Um, okay, we get a roll, folks. So, um, we got seven minutes till our break. So, that same spirit of selfishness and self-exaltation is at the bedrock of the apostate system that the papacy is, is running, right? That Satan raises up to counter God's movement of other-centered love. So, from Nimrod, oh, this is really cool if you look through the history of this, but so this begins, right? He sets up a storefront. It begins really with Cain, right? Cain set up a Christless uh, sacrifice, right? He wanted to worship God according to his terms and conditions, not according to God's. I'll do what I want. I know you said this, but I think I can do this and it'll be okay, right? And he offered of the fruit of the ground, and God intended for them to offer something from the flock. So Abel offers an acceptable sacrifice. Cain does not. And eventually through the offspring of Cain, you find Nimrod. His name literally means to rebel. And he establishes his own city in his own prominence, right? I think he's the one that says, you know, um, he's going to become famous for killing somebody who offended him or hurt him, right? And so you see this, and then you get to the Tower of Babel, right? They go into the plain of Shinar. You eventually get the Tower of Babel, which is, again, the same premise. I'm going to do what God cannot be trusted. I will need to do the work of saving myself because God can't be trusted, God's promises can't be true. I have to save myself. So they build the Tower of Babel. And um, so Babylon's founded in Genesis 10. Then they do the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. Then you get to Nebuchadnezzar, who's ruling the actual country of Babylon, who says, is this not great Babylon, which I have built, right? That I've already worked through and I've already done um, to exalt himself. To the prophetic fulfillment of Babylon and the papacy is laid out in 2 Thessalonians 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Revelation 13, and Revelation 17, Right? And so this is um, an issue, it's a big issue, right, that we see this kind of consistent theme throughout the process that is uh, not, not good or healthy. So, um, all right, so I'm going to stop on this kind of premise, but you see kind of the trajectory. So these thought processes began with Lucifer, and they're damaging to us, we see that, and we also see now there's kind of a trajectory of kingdoms on earth that he's directing with this type of philosophy, Right? And it eventually ends up the last train on the uh, or last car on the train is what you see in modern day Babylon, which is the papacy, right? You also saw it in Egypt. Uh, we talked about that as well from uh, not Prescott, but through Taylor Bunch's book, right? You have a man at the head of a, of a religio-political nation that's oppressing the people of God, right? There's parallels certainly there too. Same premise, right? You have to do all these things to appease the gods. They had a bunch of gods. All of them were worshiping the creation instead of the creator, which again is a parallel, worshiping the day of creation, worshiping the sun, a created entity, instead of worshiping the creator on Sabbath. So we see the trajectory for that, right? There's still some issues we need to work through, but this made sense so far. I just didn't want to get too sidetracked on fear because we just spent like a whole bunch of time on that already. So, um, but it's, it's part of this, though, certainly, and it leads to a selfish response. The Bible says that. We got that part. So any other questions or thoughts on this first segment? Any, any thoughts or questions on that while it's kind of fresh in your mind just to kind of solidify it? 
It would be. You know, you're right. I, I get what you're saying. And it's actually, we're going to talk about the mark of the beast in an actual, like, fundamental beliefs class. And in short, the, yeah, we have, in the fundamental beliefs, we'll walk through, like, a whole Bible study on all of that. But the, the main issues are that the mark of the beast can be received in the hand and the forehead, or, or the forehead is actually the way it's phrased, the hand or the forehead. But the seal of God can only be received in the forehead. The forehead represents a belief system. This is what you believe. This is why Ellen White says that the seal of God is a settling into the truth. But you can receive the mark of the beast and not believe that Sunday is sacred. So you will only make the decision to save your life, even though intellectually it's not really an act of worship for you. It is in a sense that you're worshiping at Satan's throne, right? Because you're trying to save yourself, right? But this is the real issue. So you can try to save yourself just because you don't want to lose your job or lose your family or your life. So you can receive the mark of the beast by what you do, right, in the hand, or by what you believe. This is how you can have Jews and atheists and even Seventh-day Adventists who will take the mark of the beast, you know, because they're just making a decision to save themselves. Like what it talks about in our memory verse in the hand or in the forehead. That's right. So, oh, so, so like, because if, if we just tell people Sunday isn't sacred, you know, then it's like, if you just... Put, like, tell people doctrines, it's not going to help because it's going to be right. in the forehead or in the hand. Right. So it's like you have to like put the love of, well, you can't do it, but like the right. love of God has to go like into their hearts. That's right. Otherwise, it's... Yeah, this is why the three angels' is not just math, right? It's this day, not that day. It's so much more than that. This is why we had to go into this, right? The spirit of Babylon to understand that it will be selfishness that leads people to make the decision to receive the mark, either in the forehead or the hand. Right? Yes, ma'am. But on another level, it could also be selfishness, selfishness that could lead people to receive the Sabbath. It's not. It's not possible. Because at the end of the day, your life is on the line. And selfishness is not true worship. A settling into the truth and receiving the seal of God will be a true obedience to His message of love. So the people who stand for God in the Sabbath, genuinely, right, are the people who are viewed as sealed. Like, people aren't going to literally risk their lives for something they don't really care about and truly believe. That's why they torture people, right, in, in warfare, right? Because if this isn't really what's in your heart, I'll get you to change. So someone keeping the Seventh-day Sabbath right now does not guarantee that they're not going to get the mark of the beast later, right? Right. But those people will flame out then. Yeah, they will last. Because those, yeah, because only those who receive the seal of God are those who have settled into the truth for themselves, which is why the danger Jesus presents in the parable of the virgins, right? You can't wait until later to try to figure it out. Like, you need to invest in having your own oil now before the bridegroom comes because of that process. Heaven wouldn't even view that as obedience. Just doing, we'll talk about that later too, but like just doing something to not get in trouble, heaven doesn't actually view that as obedience at all. Um, and so, yeah. Yes, sir. Uh, let's just remember that the Sabbath is the final test. Like, it's, yeah. like the Sabbath is the seal because we are, we are already in alignment with all the other, all the other commandments of God. So it's not just like, it's not just the Sabbath. It's right. The Sabbath is connecting all of the commandments of God. And so, like, that's the that's the final one. Like, that's the one that people have forgotten over time. And so now we're bringing this back into the picture, and it's giving, like, a full picture of God. And so that's why it's the ceiling. And so it's not just the Sabbath. It's, it's everything. That, right. That we're trying to be. Yeah. It will be the test question upon which your life is on the line. But that when she says it's a settling into the truth, she's not just saying the truth of the Sabbath. It's the truth, right? The truth as it is in Jesus. So, yeah, this is why, like, you can't apply the same logic to people receiving the mark to the seal because they're different. The seal only works one way, and it's a settling into the truth, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that, that's why that can't be the case, is what I mean. Yeah, because you, you, it sounds logical initially, but when you realize how these two things work, it's totally different, and that's why. Uh-huh. So it all kind of, I mean, this always boils down to love, but, like, it's like if you love somebody, 
and someone else is like, oh, hey, come have an affair with me. It's like, no, I'm not going to do that. I love this person. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's like that. So it's like, if we love God, we're going to be like, no, I'm going to worship on his day because yeah. this is what it means to me. And because this is his signet of love to me. So it's like, no, I'm not going to go do that because I love him. Right. And it goes back to that statement again from Ella White. The love of God ever tends to the fear of God, fear to offend him. So it leads you to guard against doing anything that would hurt him, Right or that would, you know, disappoint him or whatever. And so that's what leads people to follow. So they're not, it's not a fear-based response from people at the end of time when it matters the most. It's, they are so convinced of who God is and what he's about, which is why the Three Angels Messages has to tell that story. We can't just assume that people will get genuinely converted by only sharing the math of the issues at the end of time. You can't make that assumption. As you mentioned earlier, just telling people that don't go to church on Sunday and don't listen to the government because it's wrong, the seventh day is a Sabbath, that is not going to be enough to keep people when their life is on the line. It's just not, right? Because their selfishness will lead them to make a self-preserving decision, and it won't be an eternal one because that's not genuine conversion, Ella White said. So it's going to have to be something deeper than that, which means that the three angels' messages should lead to a response that's deeper than that. Does that make sense? which is why we're talking about what we're talking about. The math is not going to cut it. Even though the math is correct, we're totally right in that, but it won't set people up to actually be ready. That's the difference, okay? Yes. <laughs> Potentially. I don't think it should because it, it, this is super, it's a really good question you're asking. Here's how I'll answer this. It's very important that the way in which you communicate the things that you're learning are done with a tactful and balanced understanding. Because it's really easy, and I went through this phase. Most people do, unfortunately. Like I heard from presentations that were really gospel-centered. I thought, oh my goodness. And so you kind of get in this reactionary talking against the just towing the line, stay by the way marks message. But speaking against something that's true is not helpful. What you're offering is something that's even more true. So you have to be really careful. And I try to do this in how I present, and, and I may fail at times. I certainly do fail at times. But I've tried to be careful. Some people reached out to me very early on in my ministry as it was becoming public that I'm, I'm fully convinced saved my ministry of, of ensuring that I thought through how I, they never even, they didn't try to correct me, but through having dialogue with me, they opened my eyes by not saying it directly. They opened my eyes to the main issue they were trying to show me that I could be misunderstood. They felt that what I was saying was important and needed, but I could come across as imbalanced. And this is where you have to be balanced in how you do this. I have never downplayed the present truth message of Adventism and never would. So you don't talk bad about it. What you communicate is you say, hey, only doing it this way will not give the true results. We need to make sure we give this too. And you provide what's there. So you don't shame or beat down other approaches. You try not to. It can happen when you get kind of frustrated and get a little prickly. But so you don't make them mad because you're using language that they love and appreciate, but you're also showing them even more than what they knew to begin with. Does that make sense? So you have to be really careful when you do it, and that will avoid you from triggering people to some degree. Now, some people come up to you and say, hey, like, that's not the three angels' messages. Like, I, to be honest with you, I've never had someone say that to me. What I get are messages from people, because there were eight of these presentations, not all of the whole series I normally do. And I say normally, the first time I ever did this was last year as a class. But because I'm still figuring it out myself, I don't know all the answers. I'm just, as I'm studying, realizing like stuff that I've been preaching for years actually fits in the three angels' messages and should be spoken about in that context. It's like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Um, maybe that's why God convicted me to share it, not just as stuff to share. Like, this is part of what we believe in treasure and value. And it's also why I use a bunch of spirit of prophecy. Because if you use spirit of prophecy amongst people who are by the way marks, the good old doctrines type band, if you do that, they're recognizing there's even more to what they believed as opposed to what they believe is wrong. Does that make sense? So I generally don't get pushback. I did in that one situation, but I was preaching like Christ our righteousness. I wasn't talking about the three angels' messages. And even that, I approached it in a balanced way. And you'll get a little bit of that. But in a general sense, the messages I've, I've gotten from people who heard the presentations I did at Heartland were like, dude, can I have your notes? Like, this is really, really helpful. And I'm not saying that for me. I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm just sharing what I'm convicted of. And that's a small token of what God wants to share. This is just, this is baby food compared to what God has as an ideal, I'm sure. But it's helping. We're, we're moving in a direction that hopefully is helpful. 
So most people have received it warmly, but it's how you do it. You got to be really careful. And it's really easy by being, because when I first became an Adventist, my first response was being upset at what people didn't tell me. And we can have that same response as Adventists and almost sound like we're talking against what we still technically believe. It's just there's more to it than we thought. So you want to kind of fight that urge to talk against what you really believe and just give more than what we have talked about before. Does that make sense? It, it takes a lot of, of prayer and wisdom and humility and patience. But if you communicate in that way, it can help. It can. I mean, the shaking and the straight testimony of the Laodicean witness is not about health reform and dress reform, as our you know, present truth brethren would say. I think that's part of it. Uh, certainly calling us back to the full message that God gave us. I think the biggest thing that's going to shake up the church is the real Laodicean message that every single one of us are the problem and the gospel that we're talking about. I think those are going to be the two main shaking issues in the Adventist church. And so, yeah, th this is really fruitful, good discussion because we're going to, have to kind of talk through how to handle what we've learned. You got to be, you got to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. There's language I intentionally do not use when I share some of these things so I don't trigger my brethren. I'm very intentional. Say this in a way that is balanced and that speaks truth and, and, and is as, as appealing as possible to liberals and conservatives. We just don't think. We just have opinions and we share them. But if you, if you measure what you say and pray for wisdom, God can help you appeal to a larger audience than maybe you would think with stuff that's true and makes you face yourself. They're willing to do it if you do it right, praying for God's wisdom. Yes? I think there, like, there are many different components to the Karen Jones message, but most of the time what we preach about is like the Sabbath and the Mark of the Beast, like the very basic. But it's deeper than that. There's more issues and principles at stake, and I feel like that's what you're going into. Mm -hmm. Like, she would say righteousness, but I mean, the Karen Jones message is right in the very direction. Yeah, it's... it's Justification by faith in yeah. verity, right? Yeah, so it's Yeah, and you used such a helpful quote yesterday that the first and second angel's message have to be understood to receive the third. Um, and we largely don't understand them well enough to apply the third. And I think that principle would apply to, I, I think if someone had asked her, is the message justification by faith the first angel's message, she would have said in verity. If they say, is the message justification by faith the second angel's message, she would say in verity. But they asked a direct question, is this the third angel's message? But I think she would say it is the three angels' messages. I would think so. And I hopefully we're making a case for that with my feeble efforts here that that's, that's what's happening. So anyway, I am fully convinced that the best days of Adventism are ahead of us. What that looks like institutionally and all that, I can't speak to that. What the government's going to do and how they're going to intervene, and I, I can't speak to any of that. And I don't have to. It doesn't really matter. But I am fully convinced that this movement is going to embrace this message with this emphasis, and we're going home, because that's what God's wanting. And if this is what God wants, God's going to get what He wants. People are going to figure it out, and we're going to go home. That's why we started CORE, was to try to take this approach to the message we already hold so dear, to give people the tools they need to do something about it, right? So you're, you're in the right place, guys. You are, and I trust that God will bless us with the wisdom we need, and you're going to leave here and find far more insight and far more blessings in the Word of God than I have. And you're going to share those and change the world. I don't have all your answers. Here, I have a very little, and what I'm giving you is the best I got. But God will take what you hear and build on it, I promise you, if you keep studying and keep searching it for yourselves. So, anyway, I hope this is exciting you about being a Seventh-day Adventist Christian and exciting you about the Three Angels' messages and exciting you even about the crisis that's to come because... We literally have a message that can change the world. It's not just like, ah, oh, they're going to get in trouble if they go to church on the wrong day and I better tell everybody. It's so much more awesome than that. Like this message will literally make their standard of life better. They'll be happier, healthier, more whole individuals, not just people who are now going on the right day instead of the wrong day, if they go at all. Yes, yeah, it's, it's um, so we haven't been wrong about the three angels' messages, we just haven't been as right as we could be. Because I don't, I don't disagree doctrinally with the issues that we point out about Rome. I don't disagree doctrinally about the Sabbath. I don't disagree doctrinally, I mean, I would about fear um, in, in some instances, but in a general sense, like, I don't think that that's, you know, we're, we're not wrong. There's just more light that God wants to give us. And in fact, my friend Sean Brace just posted a quote yesterday from um, 
W.W. Prescott that says, one of our dangers has been that we were so sure that we had the truth that we did not want any more. And if anyone came with any more truth, we were afraid that he was departing from the faith. It's W.W. Prescott. It was in 1919. I don't know what the book is for that. But um, and because Jones and Wagner and Prescott and Ellen White got a lot of flack because it seemed like they were like changing our whole system. We weren't changing it. We were making it better. We were taking what God had started a process of and was progressively growing as we learned. That's all. This is part of that progressive revelation that God is doing. So we're not changing the three angels' messages. We're just learning how to apply the principles God gave us the more that we read. And when you read Jones's stuff and Wagner's stuff, and you, you better understand what Ellen White is saying in a big picture sense on these issues, it just makes sense. You know? So we don't have to be afraid of something that sounds different than what I've heard, because that's just that's selfish. That's assuming that you have all the answers and you know everything, and you don't. None of us do. So just because you hear something you haven't heard before doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means you haven't heard it before. Now you need to study and see if it's right. Yeah. All right, that was a tangent, but I think it was worth it. So let's pray. God, thank you. Bless us as we take this break now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.